You ever go into office buildings and you see in their foyers, they've got those motivational posters, right? They've always got some really pretty scenic picture and there's some key word, inspiring word, a little definition that's supposed to be kind of a, a pick you up and help you move forward. And uh, I have found another company that makes demotivational posters, <laughs> which frankly ring far true with me much of the time. I thought I'd just share a couple of those with you. Here's one for dreams. It says, if one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he has imagined, he will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. That's really, that's really good. That's, in, that's inspiring. Or how about this one? Perseverance. Your current situation is not your final destination. That, that's good. That, that's, that's inspiring. Dare to soar. Your attitude almost always determines your altitude in life. I say, that's, that's true. That's true. But, but those are kind of motivating. Here's the one that I really like. Success. Some people dream of success, while other people live to crush those dreams. <laughs> Ever known those people? Well, the Bible character we're going to consider this morning could have hung any one of those posters on his wall. Uh, he was a dreamer. His uh, life path soared to some incredible heights. The road getting there was a road that took a lot of perseverance. And along the way, there were many who it seemed took it as their personal mission to crush his dreams. The one thing that seemed to be a constant in both the good times and the bad was that the turns in his path were the unexpected. Today we're going to think about the story of Joseph. Now I'm not talking about Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus, as in Mary and Joseph. We're talking about Joseph, the great-grandson of Abraham. And I think if Joseph had known at the outset of his life what the journey was going to be like, he probably would have equipped himself with one of these. This is a neck brace because this pretty well describes Joseph's life, kind of one whiplash event after another. So we're going to take a look at that and just see what maybe we can learn for our own whiplash-filled lives. Uh, let me just give you an overview of Joseph's life. Uh, Joseph's birth itself was an unexpected event. Uh, his father, Jacob, had two wives, Rachel and Leah. They were sisters. Uh, it's kind of a complicated story. And uh, it includes an unwelcomed and unexpected surprise actually on Jacob's first wedding night. You can read more about that. But, but eventually, Jacob ends up married to these two sisters. One thing becomes clear in the story. Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. And that, my friends, is a recipe for disaster. I can speak from some personal experience in the third grade. In the third grade, there were two girls that I really liked, and they liked me, and I thought it would be maybe a cool idea to have two girlfriends. <laughs> and in the name of full disclosure, I did let the one girl know that the one girl was like my number one girlfriend, the other was my number two girlfriend. And could I just say to you that that does not work <laughs> at all? Um, well, that's the situation that Jacob was in, except he wasn't in the third grade. He was a grown man, and these actually were his wives. And in a time when bearing sons was socially of great significance for a woman, 
Rachel had the great misfortune that she was not able to conceive. Although she was the loved wife, she wasn't able to provide for Jacob the son that he so wanted and that she so wanted for her own status within the family, within her society. It was her sister Leah, who, as you can understand, was very eager to move up in the pecking order to become most favored wife that actually was able to bear children. And she gave Jacob four sons in a row, which were, were you know, big bonus points for her. As you can understand, Rachel begins to get kind of desperate since she is not providing any children and definitely no sons for her husband. And so she undertook what was this rather commonly accepted form of surrogacy. Uh, same thing we saw happen with Abraham and Sarah. Remember we talked about this, how Sarah was not bearing children. They believed that God had promised that uh, he was going to bring an heir to Abraham. And so Sarah finally decides to give one of her servant girls to her husband as a surrogate to bear children on her behalf. Well, R Rachel takes on the same idea. She gives one of her female servants, a girl named Bilhah, to Jacob. And the hope was that Bilhah would bear children and that those in turn would be credited to Rachel's good wife account, if you will. Uh, well, the plan worked. Bilhah bore Jacob two sons. And while Bilhah was busy being pregnant, apparently Leah was not. She'd had four sons in a row, but suddenly she's not having children. She sees the competition starting to catch up, if you will. And uh, so she decides to follow Rachel's plan and gives one of her servant girls, a girl named Zilpah, to Jacob to uh, help catch up or actually stay ahead. And Zilpah adds two more sons to the family. And, and then Leah suddenly finds herself once again in the mother way, not just once, but three more times, two more sons and a daughter. Uh, finally, at last, Jacob, or Rachel, I should say, uh, who's quite certain that she is never going to bear a son for her husband, has a son. And a little boy named Joseph is finally born. And to say that Jacob is delighted would be a gross understatement. Because although in the societal way of the pecking order, Leah had borne him all of these sons, Jacob still loved Rachel best. And when she had a son, he was over the moon over that boy. In fact, Joseph becomes the instant favorite of Joseph. He dotes on the boy. He showers him with gifts. Uh, and of course, you probably know of the famous multicolored, richly embroidered coat that he gave to him, a, a sign of status and favor within the family. Any of us who have lived in a family where one sibling is obviously favored over the others probably knows that it does not add up to family harmony. And none of that was Joseph's fault. He couldn't help his birth order. He couldn't help who his mother was. But then there came Joseph's dreams. As a young man, Joseph had some dreams. And this is where we learn that the young Joseph was lacking in emotional intelligence. 
Joseph was already leading this very privileged life, but then he had these two dreams that seemed to speak of an even brighter future. Uh, in fact, these dreams were so vivid, and the promise they held was so heady that Joseph just couldn't resist telling his family. Uh, the first dream, he sees these sheaves of grain out in the field. There are 12 sheaves of grain. There are 12 sons in the family. And in his dream, he sees that one of the sheaves, the one that represents himself, gets bigger than all the rest, rises above them all, and the other sheaves all bow down to it. Well, that's a pretty cool dream. However, his brothers didn't see it that way. And then came dream number two. Now, in dream number two, once again, he sees 11-somethings. He sees 11 stars, just like he has 11 brothers. He also sees in his dream uh, the sun and the moon, and he sees the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars all bowing down to him. And once again, showing low emotional intelligence, he decides to share that dream with his family. This wonderful news that everybody is going to bow down to him because if the 11 stars stand for the 11 brothers, well, guess who the sun and the moon represent? Well, it's mom and dad. And in a patriarchal society, saying that your father is going to bow down to you, that is a great offense. And, and although dad loves him dearly, he's not very pleased with his son's dream life. Here's what it says in Genesis 37. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind, which is interesting. I mean, it was really unsettling to the old man, but there was something about that dream and his son that made him wonder what the future was actually going to hold. Which kind of reminds me of the story we have recorded of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Do you recall after Jesus was born, the shepherds arrived, they're telling her about the angels that visited them, they've come to see this child, they go away, they're telling people about it, but it says that Mary um, kept these things, she pondered them in her heart, she kept thinking about it. And, and there's kind of a parallel there, which is interesting because we're going to talk some more in a bit about some of the fascinating connections between the stories of Joseph and of Jesus. Now, imagine that you are a young man who has just had two vivid dreams like that. You look ahead to the future. How do you picture your future? What do you think life is going to look like? That's what I would picture. Say, I'm already the most favored son of a wealthy dad, and all of my dreams are that even my powerful rich father and all my brothers are going to bow down to me. My future is on a rocket sled to greater things. Well, then comes another unexpected, and that was Joseph's departure from home. That first whiplash event of Joseph's privileged and promising life came on the day that his dad sent him to check on his brothers. They had apparently traveled some distance from home, finding pasture for their flocks. 
Uh, and dad says, could you go out and check on your brothers, see how they're doing? And unfortunately for Joseph, who was quite unpopular with his brothers, that meant that when he found them, Daddy Dearest was nowhere nearby to protect his darling boy. The brothers saw him coming from a long ways off. And of course, with that bright, multicolored coat, I'm sure that he just stood out like a sore thumb on the distant hills. They saw him, and they all had time to talk. Like, oh, great. You know, here comes Mr. Rising Star himself, Daddy's favor. What are we going to do with him? And they actually hatched this plan to get rid of the arrogant little troublemaker and his peacock coat. Uh, the plan was pretty simple and pretty brutal. They said, let's just kill him. We're way out here. There's nobody around. We'll just kill him. We'll bury him, and that'll be the end of it. Uh, fortunately, one of his brothers had a conscience and talked them out of murder, and he suggested that instead of killing him, they grab Joseph, dump him in a pit, which was kind of the ancient equivalent of stuffing somebody in a toilet in the locker room. And uh, apparently what he hoped was that that would buy him some time to figure out a way to save the kid's life. So that's what they did. They grabbed him. They stripped off the designer coat that Daddy gave him, probably roughed him up a little bit, probably told him exactly what they thought of him and his narcissistic little dreams, and then they stuck him in a pit and went off to eat lunch. And suddenly, Joseph, the rising star, became Joseph, the pit dweller. Well, while they're eating lunch, this caravan of traders comes by. One of the brothers gets this bright idea that rather than harming Joseph, they could actually make a little money on the deal. And so they sold him to these passing traders as a slave. And Joseph, the pit dweller, became Joseph, the slave. In the brothers' minds, that was a win-win. We're rid of Joseph, and we got money to boot. And just like that, Joseph's life lurches from one of privilege to one of slavery. Well, but there's another unexpected coming up for Joseph, because when they get down to Egypt with these traders, they sell him, and this time they sell him to a captain in Pharaoh's army, a man named Potiphar. And while Joseph may have been born with a silver spoon in his mouth, it doesn't appear to have left him unable to appreciate the value of hard work. And Joseph applies himself and proves himself to his new owner, his new boss. And his boss ends up promoting him. And suddenly, unexpectedly, he finds himself promoted to being the head steward of Potiphar's house. Everything is put under his control to run his affairs. And he was still a slave, and those ancient dreams about chiefs and stars bowing down to him didn't look like they were going to come true, but at least he'd made it up from the bottom rung of the ladder. He had a little bit of dignity restored. But if you know Joseph's story, keep the neck brace handy because it's going to change. And it changed because when Joseph had grown into a, a full man, he apparently was a handsome guy which again got him noticed, but not in the way that he wanted to be noticed, because unfortunately, he got noticed by the boss's wife. In our day, there's lots of talk about sexual harassment by powerful people, which is nothing new. And it is precisely the situation that Joseph found himself in. And as the story goes, this lady was relentless. Here's what Genesis 39.10 says. She spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. 
This was nothing that Joseph had expected. He wasn't looking for trouble, but trouble came knocking. His consistent refusal to give in to her requests showed his determination, though, to do what was right, what was honorable. And we might say at that point that Joseph the steward distinguished himself as Joseph the saint. And doing the right thing always makes you a winner in life, right? Not necessarily. Where is that neck brace when you need it? Potiphar's wife gets angry that she's been rejected, and so she concocts a story. Rather than admitting that she's a cougar, she tells her husband that Joseph is a stalker. And just like that, Joseph's life takes another violent and unexpected turn because Potiphar has him thrown in prison. This time it could be argued that Joseph had reached a rung even lower than slave. He was now a prisoner slave. But these surprises aren't over. One of the things that you see displayed consistently in Joseph's life is his trustworthy character. I used to tell my kids when they were young that being diligent and trustworthy would actually take them farther in any career than education or job skills. If people know they can trust you, if they know that you will work hard at what they've given you to do, you'll go places. And that was Joseph. And even in prison, rather than collapsing into self-pity for what had happened to him, he applied himself. And we find out that it wasn't long until he was actually given a role of authority within the prison. He kind of becomes the prison steward. Who would expect to get a promotion in jail? But there was still another jackknife coming for Joseph. And this one, again, related to dreams. While he's in prison, he meets two new prisoners. They were servants in Pharaoh's court. Apparently, it was a popular thing to do to employees. If you had employees who weren't happy with you, threw them in prison for a while. So Pharaoh now has thrown these two guys in. One was the royal baker. The other was a cupbearer to the king. I'm not sure what you do as a baker to get yourself thrown in prison. You know, you don't have the donuts rise or something. But anyway, here he is. Uh, and then the cupbearer to the king. That's the guy whose job it was to sample the king's food to make sure it wasn't poisoned, which that's got to be kind of a nerve-wracking job. Um, well, on the same night, these two had unusual dreams, and they came to Joseph to see if he could help them out. And, and God blessed Joseph to reveal the meaning of their dreams. So instead of living his own dream, he now becomes the interpreter of theirs. For the cupbearer, it was good news. Joseph says, your dream means that you're going to get your job back very quickly. For the baker, who was kind of excited, hearing the good news you know, for the, the cupbearer, he's excited, like, and what does my dream mean? And Joseph says, well, yours isn't quite as good. Your dream means that you're going to hang. And turns out Joseph was right. The cupbearer is released, and the baker was hung. Again, how do you get hung as a baker? Um, but unfortunately, the cupbearer failed to tell the king what a fine fellow Joseph was. So Joseph just stays there in prison. Finally, though, the king has a dream. None of his wise men could figure it out. And it's at that point the cupbearer remembers Joseph. And he says, I know a guy that maybe can help you out with understanding your dream. So the king calls for Joseph. Joseph, again, is enabled by God to interpret the dream. And the dream indicated that there were going to be seven years of prosperity. Seven good years were coming. But then it was going to be followed by seven years of famine. And Joseph's counsel 
was that Pharaoh should appoint someone to stock up during the years of plenty so there would be food to be had during the years of famine. And Pharaoh's response was, that is a great idea. I think you're the man. And just like that, Joseph grabbed his neck brace and was jerked from prison into a governor's mansion in Egypt. Well, then there's one more twist in the story you have to know about. Uh, another unexpected. See, the famine came to Egypt just like Joseph had said, but it wasn't just Egypt. It was the entire region. And Joseph's family, far away, remember the brothers who had sold him into slavery years before? Famine hits there too. And word gets out that there was grain in Egypt to purchase. What they heard was that there was some Egyptian governor there with some incredible foresight who had been stockpiling in advance, and you could actually go and buy grain. So Jacob tells his boys, the same 11 who had betrayed Joseph to begin with, to head down to Egypt and see if they can buy grain. And as they say, the rest is history. Uh, the brothers get there, they bow low before this powerful Egyptian ruler asking if they can purchase grain. Do you recall a certain dream the young boy had about chiefs of grain bowing down? Well, Joseph recognizes them, even though they don't recognize him. I'm not going to go into the full story, but it is fascinating. And if you don't know it, you should read Genesis 42 through 45. The bottom line is Joseph creates this series of tests to see if his brothers have changed. And the good news is they had. And Joseph finally, tearfully, reveals his identity to his brothers. The brothers, understandably, are um, shocked and terrified. How do you feel knowing the guy that you threw in a pit and sold as a slave now is a powerful ruler in Egypt and you're there asking for his help? But Joseph reassures them he's not going to harm them. In fact, he does the opposite. He provides a place for his entire family, father included, to come and live and be safe for the duration of the famine. In fact, if you haven't put all the pieces together, remember how Israel ends up being slaves in Egypt? This is actually the event that gets them to Egypt. Their, their time in Egypt started out as a positive. They, were, they went there to be protected. As the years went on and after Joseph died and other pharaohs came up, that turned into a situation of slavery. But it began as something very positive. And, and for Joseph, though, all the things that God had shown him years before at the beginning ultimately became true. Joseph got to become Joseph, the hero. Well, it's a beautiful story. The story of perseverance and trial, of unexpected provision, forgiveness, reconciliation. What can we learn from the whiplash-filled story of Joseph for our own unexpected journeys? When Joseph had the dream of the wheat, I'm pretty sure he imagined some kind of smooth, ascending line to greatness. I remember when I was young, that was how I pictured my life was going to be. I was going to achieve one thing after another, and we'd keep working our way up the rungs of the ladder. That's how life was going to go, right? And God did indeed have great things in mind for Joseph. But the brash young man who blabbed his dreams wasn't yet ready to be a man of greatness. Genesis 39, 21. The Lord was with Joseph, 
and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Now, my expectation would be that if God's steadfast love was with me, that I wouldn't even be in a prison to start with. And the story of Joseph is that God let him be in the prison. And even in the prison, God's steadfast love was still looking over Joseph. I don't know about you, but what I have found is that God has often used the unexpected and the unexpected downturns to shape me and to humble me. That's one of the stories of Joseph. God took Joseph on a journey that, yes, it was destined to do great things, but before he could become a great man, he had to first learn how to be a humble man. One of the beautiful things about Joseph is we see that through it all, he stayed faithful. He kept doing what he knew was right, and he left the results in God's hands. There's no record that Joseph ever allowed his disappointment And you knew he had to be deeply disappointed in where life took him so often. But he never is recorded as having let that disappointment turn to bitterness or a rationale for rebellion. I mean, think about it. All the stuff that he had lost. Don't you think he could see the opportunity with Potiphar's wife? It's like, God, you've forsaken me here. I've got nothing If I play my cards right here, I can move my way into all kinds of things. This lady will do stuff for me. All I have to do is walk away from what I know is right. And yet Joseph never did that. It's interesting how Joseph eventually named his own sons. He had two of them while he was in Egypt, Manasseh and Ephraim. Both the names have significance, but I want to focus on the name Ephraim. Genesis 41:52, we read this. The name of the second son he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. That word Ephraim sounds like a Hebrew word meaning fruitful, which means that Joseph had come to recognize that two things were simultaneously at play in his life. Yes, Egypt was a place of affliction. Joseph never pretended that it wasn't. It had been hardship that had taken him there. And yet, Joseph recognized that that isn't all that Egypt represented. Joseph recognized that God had been there even in the place of affliction and through it had brought blessing into his life. He saw it and he memorialized it, even the naming of his son. It's one of the big lessons of Joseph. He never lost sight of the fact that God in his sovereignty was still at work even in the dark times. Genesis 45, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. He's saying this to his brothers after he revealed himself to them. He says, you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He could look at his brothers for all their dastardly planning years before and say, yeah, don't worry. I know that you think it was all about you. I just want you to know that despite what you did, God had his hand in it. And and God was actually bringing something about, not just for my good, ultimately for your good too. It was not you who sent me here, 
but God. An amazing perspective. Have you ever had those moments where you've gone through a terrible trial, and yet a point comes where God suddenly makes himself known, and you realize he was there all the time? I can look back at what was probably one of the most crushing episodes in my life, and, and going through a period where I just thought, God, are you, are you, are you even real? Are you there? Have you for, totally forgotten about where I'm at right now? And there came this day when God, in a very unique way for me, made himself known. And it didn't change the fact that what had transpired prior to that was really, really painful. But it suddenly put a different perspective on it. It's like, God, you haven't forgotten me. This isn't a dead end. You are still here. You are still doing things. That moment wasn't the end of the journey for me. I haven't hit the end of the journey yet. But it was this key moment. And I trust you've had them too, where you could look and say, God, you are still here. You are still with me. You are still for me, even in the times of crushing trial. One of the things that Joseph does is he points us back to Jesus. There's a dynamic to Joseph's life that we shouldn't miss. Uh, Joseph, through all of his humbling, ultimately became a deliverer for his people, which is a beautiful foreshadowing of another great deliverer. Uh, George Crabb just finished teaching a class on seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. And I asked him if he would come and just share a bit of how the life of Joseph gives us a picture of the life of Jesus. George, when you sent me your material, you got three pages of material on this. We're not going to have time for all of that. Don't be afraid. No. <laughs> I'll make it quick, I Don't promise. make it quick. <laughs> but there is a lot here, and I want you to have a chance to read up on it. So out in the entryway, uh, there are some sheets on a table out there that has kind of this full article that George wrote. Uh, if you're watching with us online, uh, we also have posted online for you. But George, why don't you take a few minutes and just sure. share a few highlights. Sure. Thanks, Tim. Yeah. Um, I taught about 10 years ago at a church, and, uh, and God just blessed it. He, he, he loves how we find Jesus in the Old Testament. We know that from the road to Emmaus, you know, the resurrection day in Luke 24, and he walked along with those two guys in disguise, and he went through all the scriptures. That's the Old Testament. And it struck me when I read, I always love Joseph's story. And what Tim's talking about right now, it was always a blessing to read Joseph's story. There's something about that guy. And then it came, just clicked, like, wait a minute, there's an underlying story. It's Jesus. So he was the father's most favored son. He had a, he had a miraculous birth, right? Uh, Tim just talked about that. He was the father's most favored son. He was rejected, despised and rejected by his own he was sold for 20 pieces of silver. That was the price of a slave at that time. 30 pieces of silver was a price of a slave in Jesus' time. And he was sold by his brother, came up with the idea Judah, and that's where we get the name Judas. It derives from the name Judah. So it's like, wow, look at this. Then he was, he was falsely accused again, put in that place of the condemned, and down in that place of the condemned, that where he was in that prison, there were two, as Tim talked about, the baker and the cupbearer, which is a picture of communion, right? But they're also a picture of the two who were crucified with Jesus. One was cursed, 
the other was given life again and restored to the king. And it's like, wow, there's, there's more. And it keeps going. <laughs> and then he was raised up out of that place, raised up, brought before the throne, and only he was found worthy to reveal, God gave him the, the revealing of that secret plan, that sealed plan that God had about a future time period. Well, in Revelation, we know that John sees the throne and, he's in, and there's a scroll in the right hand, the seven seals, and, and no one can open it. But he saw the Lamb of God. The elder says, behold, he was weeping, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. He can reveal it. So Joseph was a picture and a type of Jesus, and he was able to reveal God's plan. And then he was given a Gentile bride. <laughs> and then later, this, there was a great harvest when that last piece of grain was collected. That last number, that little piece of grain, like the sands of the sea, Revelation 7, there was a multitude before the throne. Then and his Gentile bride was with him. Then that seven-year period came where he rescued his brothers who were bowed down to him. And he says, and this is the favorite, this is my favorite thing right here, you guys. He says in Hebrew, Ani Yosef, I am Joseph. And they were dismayed. <gasps> they were scared. <laughs> I bet they were, right? And he says, come closer. He goes, just like Tim just talked about. He showed them chesed, which is a Hebrew word for loving kindness and tender mercies as grace. And he says, it's okay, God did this. He brought you here, he brought me here and had you sold me, sell me down to, to uh, Egypt to save many alive to this day. So that's the greatest thing is the forgiveness and the loving kindness that Joseph showed. That was supernatural. <laughs> and that was a picture of Jesus. That's great, thank you, George. Thank you, Tim. Um, and I hope you pick up that sheet out there. Um, if we run out of copies out there, grab it online. But uh, it is a beautiful picture that we have in the life of Joseph of what God was going to do through his loved son, Jesus. Who's in control of your life? Who's in control of your future? You know, if, if you think you're in control, it probably would tell me that you're fairly young. Those of us who have lived a while understand that we don't have near as much control as we like to think we do. I think that sometimes when I go to high school graduations and I listen to the glowing speeches of how, you know, they're going to change the world, and you go, I hope you do change the world, but those of us older go, got some news for you. There are a few things in this world that are out of your control. When you recognize how out of control you are, though, sometimes, our lives get dominated by anxiety, despair, anger, bitterness, fatalism, because we can't make life be what we want it to be. But the story of Joseph is a reminder to us that there is someone who knows the end from the beginning, someone who is in control over all of it, and to walk in a relationship with him doesn't mean that we are removed from this broken world. We, we are still living in a world where sin breaks everything. And why does God let bad things happen to good people? I think it's the question that haunts every honest seeker. And I don't have all of the answers. It would be insulting, I think, to a person's pain if I were to suggest 
that I can explain all of it. But I have lived long enough to see God bring some incredible outcomes, outcomes of healing and reconciliation from situations that seemed broken beyond all repair. Joseph there in that prison certainly had no clear sense that God could ever redeem him out of that pit. And never in his wildest dreams, at that point in his life, did he think that the thing he had dreamed years before about becoming a savior to his brothers, certainly none of that could ever come true. And yet when God finally put Joseph in that position, it wasn't as the arrogant young man who was so excited that people might bow down to him. It was as a man who had learned humility and dependence, who understood brokenness, and when he saw his brothers broken before him, he was moved with compassion and love for them. Psalm 23, verse 4, is this wonderful reminder that we do not walk alone. David says that the Lord leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. I often share at memorial services that the valley of the shadow of death is not something that we get to go around. It's something we have to pass through. But it's not a box canyon. It's a valley that he takes us through. Maybe the valley for you isn't the valley of the shadow of death. We all have valleys, though, with dark shadows. And what David reminds us is that we do not go through the valley alone if we're there with the Good Shepherd. Don't miss what the good is that God is working toward. It may not be your youthful dream of what success looks like. The ultimate good, the thing that God always and in all things is working to bring about in the lives of his children is that they would become more and more like his son. And sometimes it's the breaking things, it's the humbling things that really have the greatest fruit. Uh, Lance, who's going to be coming uh, in a few weeks, he and I were having breakfast Friday morning. We got talking about this whole idea of Christian character and how it's developed. And, and he right away voiced something that, that I've been voicing for a long time too, and that is love is the most important thing that God wants to develop in our lives. But if you want to talk about the virtue that goes hand in hand with it, it is humility. And I have learned more humility in my brokenness than I ever did in my success. And in the process, he often uses us to give life to others. The one we follow is the one who determines the final outcome. If God has placed you in a place of blessing right now, if it's a place of abundance, he's given you blessings so that you can bless others. If he's allowed you to pass into a dark valley, it's not because he has forgotten you. And trust me, there have been times in my life I'm not sure I could have said that with confidence. When you're in the dark valley, that's a little hard to lay claim to sometimes. But I just want to encourage you, God has not forgotten you. In it all, all of the unexpected twists and turns of life the God of Joseph is your God too. He is ever and always at work 
to shape our hearts to be like his son in all of the unexpected. Amen?